You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 98 with Tiffany DeFou. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's up, Blazer Nation? Thank you so much for joining us today. I've got a really special guest for you. She was named to Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women. Her name is Tiffany DeFoo. She's today the Chief Leadership Officer to Levo, which is the fastest growing millennial professional network. She's been featured in the New York Times, Essence, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, and she's a sought-after speaker on women's leadership. So here's the thing, a good friend of mine and our episode 36 guest, who's going to be making a comeback next week on episode 99, said, Stephen, you've absolutely got to read her book. And that's what I did. Tiffany DeFu has authored a book titled Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. Hands down, one of the best books I've read this year. But the interesting thing is, it's a book that most women are going to think is for them, and it is. It's a book that encourages women to develop the skill to let go so that you're able to thrive. And if you're a married woman, if you have kids, this is an absolute must-read. But if you're a husband, if you're a dude, if you're a coworker, if you're a boss of a woman with kids, family, multiple obligations, this book is going to help you to see some things from another perspective. So I encourage everyone to go out and pick up this book. Drop it on your Amazon wish list. It'll make a great holiday read while you're resting this holiday season. So Blazer Nation, let's help spread the word about this episode, right? We're going to reshare the tweets, reshare the IG posts with your network, send a couple emails, maybe share a WhatsApp. You can take one of the images from our show notes page over at TV Pod and send it out to your friends and family and tell them to check this episode out. Found out this week that the podcast was just accepted to Spotify. So big blessing there if you're a Spotify user and it makes more sense to listen on Spotify, feel free to search us and follow us there. Last thing before we dive in, I love to give props to those that show us some love and I haven't done that in a while and we've got a few new listener reviews over on Apple Podcasts. So I wanted to send a special heartfelt Jamaican big ups to my sister from another mister, Mrs. Tamika Montgomery of the Raising Entrepreneurs podcast, who left us a five-star rating and a review that reads, love the show. Stephen, I love your guests and what you're able to get them to share. Thanks so much for sharing these inspiring stories. Tamika, thank you so much for that awesome rating and review. Blazer Nation, if you've not yet done so, I'm going to encourage you to hop into your Apple Podcast app, leave us a five-star rating, and share your thoughts on why you love this podcast, right? Uh, what makes you continue to listen to us week after week. You might be the next featured trailblazer that gets a shout-out in our pre-interview chatter. So you guys know we're only two weeks away from episode 100, and I'm super excited. I've got some amazing things for you on that episode, so stay tuned and keep blazing. That said, let's dive in to this week's Mission Fuel with our featured trailblazer, Tiffany DePoo. Enjoy. 
Tiffany, welcome. I am over the moon excited to have you as our featured trailblazer today. Well, I am equally over the moon. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I often am one to kick off a conversation talking about gratitude. So right up front, I would love you to share with us what you're most grateful for in your life right now. Oh, wow. You know, gratitude is really important to me. I talk about gratitude in my book, Drop the Ball, and I spend a great deal of time trying to teach my children this value. It's it's actually very difficult to instill in kids. They want everything right away. (laughs) You know, right now in this moment, I'm most grateful for the fact that I already know why I'm on the planet. Now, I spend a lot of time with people who are going through the motions of everyday life and they're quote unquote successful and they've achieved just a certain level of, you know, accolades and recognition for the work that they do. But they're really struggling with figuring out what is the ultimate outcome that I'm trying to achieve. And I know that my life's work is advancing women and girls. That's pretty much why I'm on the planet. And I feel quite grateful that each and every day, I can stay focused on my highest, best use of achieving that. So, growing up, you possessed a natural obsession to do things yourself and be in control. And I know you were born and raised in Washington State, thought of a preacher. And I read that in your teenage years, you took on this mantra of doing it all yourself after your parents had separated and your sister and dad seems to have failed to be able to pull some of their load. Would you say the circumstances of your early years was what molded you into being a leader, or do you think you were born with these traits? Oh, I think all of us are molded by our surroundings and by the people who we come into contact with and by the messages that they send to you. So, you know, one of my most formative experiences was being told every day, particularly by my mother, Tiffany, you're so smart, you're so beautiful, you're so loved. Tiffany, you're so smart, you're so beautiful, you're so loved. And that really shaped me in a big way because we all have these negative voices in our head. I've named mine, I call her Cynthia, who are constantly telling us that we're not enough, you're not prepared, you should have done this the other way. It's kind of that voice that beats yourself up. And what my mother was doing in my childhood was reinforcing me with another counter narrative, with a counter voice that I think has done a lot to shape my leadership and to shape who I am. You know, I was always told, like many of us are, that I was college bound, that you know, I was going to college. I never really reconciled that until much later in my life with all of the other responsibilities that go along with the pressures. But I certainly have always been one of those A-type personality kids that, you know, raises their hand <laughs> very quickly and sits at the front of the class and spent a lot of time, fortunately and unfortunately, feeling like my primary responsibility was performing for others and making sure that I wasn't disappointing other people. Happy you said that because I have a seven-year-old who's extremely competitive at sports, but at other times can lack confidence in herself. And I always find myself, you know, telling her, hey, Layla, say after me, you're confident, you're smart, you're beautiful. And I say it all the time to the point that I'm almost nagging her. But I love that you shared that because it confirms and reaffirms the the importance of what I'm doing, you know, in providing that positive mindset and that positive thoughts that hopefully she carries on. And keep doing it. You know, when I was an adolescent, I was a teenager. I used to try out to annoy me to no end. Right. Right. Yeah, she's <laughs> but, like, daddy, um, stop. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, I used to say that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. But you know, it'll come back to me. Back then, 
what did you think you were born to do? I did always have a sense of myself as a leader. I wouldn't have called it leadership, but I was very proud of the fact that people wanted to know what I thought. They wanted to know what I had to say. They wanted, people wanted to read what I wrote. I used to write all the time. I wrote poetry. I wrote stories. And part of that, I think, was just growing up in a community that was very nurturing. I grew up in a church. You know, people in the church, you know, what do, what do you read? What are you reading today, honey? What are you writing today, honey? What can I read? And so I thought of myself as a person who had ideas, who had something to say. And I had to be respectful. I certainly, you know, never inserted myself in grown folks' conversation. But, you know, back then, I felt like I had a responsibility and that I needed to do well and that excellence was important. That's awesome. So... Unfortunately, I really have an opportunity to read the books of my guests before an interview. But I was sharing with a dear friend, Tiffany Sutherland, that I had an interview with you coming up and she said, Stephen, you've got to read the book. And so I ordered your book. I began reading on a flight from Anaheim back home to Maryland. And Tiffany, I didn't put that book down for like three hours in flight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt in many ways like I was looking in a mirror of sorts, but from a different seat, right? Unlike... Mm -hmm. Many of your readers, I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm much like your husband, Kojo, who sees himself as this loving husband and a, air quotes, active dad, right? <laughs> and clueless to some of the feelings of his wife. Did Kojo discover some of your feelings for the first time when reading the book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, after the first <laughs> draft, you know, I gave him the first draft of the book. I wrote the entire book before I shared it really? with him. <laughs> I and was wondering about that. I did, and he read the first draft of the book, and he came to me. He said two things, but the first thing that he said was, is this what's been happening in our house for almost 20 years? And I right. said, yes. And he was like, this is so helpful. <laughs> he said, this is going to be yes. a really good book for men, because what it does is it pulls the curtain back on the psychology of women. So, yes. you know, if you've ever been a man who was like, hmm, what just happened there? All of a sudden, she seems upset. I have no idea why. It really does help to explain what is going on inside of our brains and in our consciousness and in our hearts that's propelling us to care about things that seem quite insignificant. Absolutely. Like the direction that hangers are facing in a closet. <laughs> well, see, you know, and the thing is, some of the things you brought up in the book, they're inverted in our relationship. But they are, even the week before I read the book, my wife was saying to me, hey, you know, she essentially was saying, I'm carrying a lot of balls. And she said something to the effect of, you have no idea, you know, anything about the kid's childcare. We have two young kids, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And I realized at that point, she was right. Maybe there are other things that, but, you know, through reading the book, it really was an eye-opener. How has your relationship changed after he read the book? Well, you know... We've been, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. So, That's awesome. I would say not like, not that much has changed because by the time he read the book, I had already gone through this really strenuous, Process. but sometimes hilarious journey of figuring out how to meaningfully engage him. And by the way, right. the book is a love letter to him and to all men and yes. a real tribute to what happens in our homes when men are allowed to have their ingenuity and their creativity and their talent tapped at home the way that women's ingenuity and creativity and talent is tapped in the workplace. So I certainly meant it as a tribute 
two men. And, you know, by that time, we had gone through the process. So right, I right. think that makes sense. the only difference is that we have more to laugh about. Right. And <laughs> I imposed a language and I imposed words on the dynamics of our relationship that now we both use. For example, I needed to come up with a term for what we were, and I called it all in partnership, and I really have been advocating the importance of all in partnership. But he didn't know that it was called all in partnership, but now that's how we talk about it. What does all in partnership mean? All in partnership, as I describe it in the book, is a scenario in which you know you have two people who are working outside of the home, but mm-hmm. are both co-managing inside the home and contributing equally or certainly in collaboration together to ensure that you're leading on a home life that's really thriving and that everyone's fulfilled and everyone's getting out of it what they want, as opposed to what a lot of straight couples in particular do, which is kind of default gender norms and gender stereotypes. And I found in my own journey that while I was always a huge proponent, particularly as a feminist, of disrupting gender stereotypes in the workplace, in the world, that when it came to my personal life, you know, my dirty feminist secret was that I didn't disrupt them at all. I certainly was conforming very much to gender stereotypes when it came to my home. So really turning that around and figuring out how to meaningfully engage everyone has been a real eye-opener for me and a really important life lesson. You know, you mentioned in the book that we often define good moms today by what we saw our moms and our grandmothers do, you know, generations before us. Can you highlight the dangers of those expectations and maybe help us to reframe what a good mom is today? Absolutely. And by the way, this happens for all of our roles. Mm -hmm. You know, we all enter our lives fulfilling roles. If you're a man, it's usually son. If you're a woman, it's usually daughter. You might become a brother or sister if you have siblings. You are a friend. You're a student. You're a worker. Eventually, Mm -hmm. some of us become wives and mothers, husbands and fathers. If we're ambitious people, which most professional are, particularly if you're a black professional, you by default put the word good in front of all of those roles. So it's not sufficient to be a daughter. You strive to be a good daughter, right? It's not Mm -hmm. sufficient to be a friend. You strive to be a good friend, a good son, a good worker, a good mom. And in my journey, what I've discovered is that we all have these invisible job descriptions associated with what it means to be a good anything. And for good mom, for example, there's this line in that job description that says, you need to be physically present when your child takes their first steps. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with a mother who is scheduled to go off on some business trip. Her child is about a year old, and she just knows as soon as that flight takes off, her child is going to take their first steps. She will have missed it and not been there for them, and it will have made her a very bad mother. I've heard the story so often that I can repeat it. And so, what? And all of those expectations come from our childhoods. They come from culture. I grew up on the Cosby Show. I was going to be Claire Huxtable, you know, when I grew up. And so it's not our fault that we get sent all of these messages, but it is our responsibility to recurate the job descriptions in a way that works for us in this modern era and for our families and for the lives that we're living today, as opposed to having this expectation that we're going to hearken back to the past. And it's a really daunting realization that for someone like me who feels like, well, I'm the most powerful change agent in my own journey. I'm in the driver's seat of my life to come to this realization that actually most of what you're doing is just kind of this default mode based on 
what other people are expecting you to do. So that's part of the process of dropping the ball. That for me is really what it is. It's moving from being completely fearful, which I always was, and ever dropping a ball of, you know, failing to take timely action and disappointing other people to really dropping these unrealistic expectations about who we're supposed to be that come from outside of ourselves. Right. Right. So, you know, from reading the book and from my vantage point, there are a couple traps or a couple holes that I sensed when reading and I wanted to discuss a couple of them with you. So the first thing was this miscommunication trap, if you will. And there are a couple of occasions, I think you alluded to this earlier, but there are a couple of occasions where it seems like carrying a good bit of heavy stuff for a good long time on the inside without speaking your mind. And you had me pause <laughs> in flights and elsewhere, you know, debating like, man, you know, is Kristen being silent with me, but yet ready to explode at certain points in time? And she doesn't. And I know every relationship is obviously different, but do you think husbands, especially, do you think we should be communicating even more with our wives to try and understand the balance or lack thereof? when it comes to those household and parental tasks and being clear about who's doing what? Well, I think all of us can do better to be more communicative. Mm -hmm. And really, I'm so glad you're honing in on that because my core lesson and insight was that while in the workplace, I was a pretty savvy communicator at home. I sucked at it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the dynamic that you're talking about is what I call in the book stealth resentment, you know, which is mm-hmm. kind of just kind of second sits, trap. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of sits, you know, under the surface. And for me, it was particularly daunting because it was combined with this very bad case of what I call imaginary delegation. Mm-hmm. So this is basically when you assign someone a task, you fully expect them to complete the task when they don't do it, especially not on spec. You're annoyed, you're frustrated, but you never actually tell them that you assign (laughs) the task to them, right? And then when common sense prevails and you say to yourself, well, I never actually told them to take out the recycling, you quickly snap back at common sense. Well, no one has to tell me to take the recycling out around here. I mean, can't we see what needs to happen around here? Why am I the only person, right, that continues to do that? And so that's how the self-resentment stays under the surface. But of course, you're ready to fire an attack. At any time, it's like, where's the pacifier? Where it always is, you know, it's kind of like going, going off of the rails. And yet, you're not explicit. And so the most important thing that I learned how to do in this journey of dropping the ball is have these intentional, meaningful conversations, particularly with my husband, about how I was trying to make the world a better place and how he could support me in doing that. And so I had to go from imaginary delegation to what I call delegating with joy. And I literally took a page from Dr. Phil. I read a magazine religiously and I love his column. And he always has these scripts for managing a difficult conversation. And I started doing what I would do at work. You know, if I wanted to raise it more for or I wanted to move something forward, I would schedule time with someone to talk to them about it. I would think in advance about what do they want to achieve? Well, how can I position this as a win-win? I would talk about them and their goals and what they wanted to achieve. And I would really frame my ask in the context of a higher purpose than just taking out the recycling. And so I had to learn how to really position and speak and communicate differently. And it made all the difference in the world. Love it. And you touched on this second trap or hole that I, I'm 
referring to as resentment, right? And you made a point while I was reading that resentment stands in the way of intimacy. And, you know, I am looking at, I feel lost as a man in many ways, right? Your husband, myself, many other brothers that were sitting on a couch somewhere pretty much clueless as to what our wives are truly feeling. And I'm just trying to think through what are maybe some daily actions that we can do to be able to remind us to let go of the resentment so it doesn't impede on the intimacy and drive things self in that way. I'm so glad that you're asking this question because one of the things that I've had to do, and then, you know, my husband started to do it too, in some ways is to signal to each other the gratitude itself mm. and create a relationship and an environment that's more conducive to vulnerability. Right. Because basically that's what the resentment, in order for you to be resentment, and by the way, I had a mentor who once broke it down for me and said, Tiffany, resentment is like, drinking poison and expecting Mm -hmm. the other person to die Mm -hmm. okay because you're the only one that's really impacted negatively by you feeling the resentment but the resentment comes from you making up a story you have to create a story of this other person being the big bad wolf (laughs) and you know you being the victim and this cycle continues and how i disrupt the cycle and how my husband has started disrupting the cycle One is to play games with each other. So we have this emoji game that we play where we decide that throughout any particular day, anytime one of us pops into one another's mind, we're just going to send a quick emoji, you know, via text. And it's like, I don't even have to punch anything out. It's just like a smiley face or it's just like, you know, the character that has like two hearts in their eyes. Just to let you know, you, you popped into my head. And you don't have to say why you popped in, but just, you know, to let you know that you're on my heart and you're on my mind. And I find that at the end of those days, we both feel so much better about being close and being intimate and being vulnerable with one another. But I think the most important thing is to have really open conversations about what needs to happen. One of the most important tools that we discovered in the book is what we call a management Excel list. It's what we call it a mail. And it's literally a spreadsheet that outlines everything that needs to happen in order for our home to manage functionally and smoothly. And the reason why it's such an important tool is because the first time that we created it together, we realized that even with two people who care deeply about one another and their family, there really isn't enough time in a 24-hour day, a seven-day cycle to get it all done, Right. right? And it becomes very clear that, wow, our expectations of each other are far too high for the reality of today's world. And I think that's like a first step in really getting over the resentment, but also building in some kind of tool to get clear. And it's been an important tool because we each have a column. Our kids now have a column. Really? And we literally put X's next to what our expectations are about what each person can do. But the most important column on the mail is the no one column. Because we put X's next to the things that we just agree neither one of us can do, the kids can't do, it's just going to have to sit, like the car is just going to have to be dirty for three months, we're just going to have to pull our clean clothes from a wrinkled laundry bin, we're not going to have time to fold it. In that way, the tension and the intensity reduces dramatically in our home life and in our relationship. Because there is no resentment. And we even joke about the fact that when something falls through the crack, well, we need to have a conversation with Mel. No, you need to have a conversation with Mel about, you know, what that is. So I think it's been very helpful in terms of reducing 
the resentment and the anxiety, but it's having real conversations that we normally that we have at work. We're very good at doing it at work, but absolutely. I tell you what, I could talk to you about this book for like the rest of the day. <laughs> I have taken so much from this, and there's so much more, guys. For everyone listening, absolutely have to get a copy of Drop the Ball. I've been telling pretty much all my boys to buy a copy of it because I really think for our husbands and dads and for leaders, male leaders, I think this just gives you a completely different perspective on this. And, you know, there's something that I read that said something I really love that, you know, we're often mired in the trees of day-to-day stress and couldn't always see the forest. We're so worried about the bills and the vacations that don't happen, but we forget or lose sight of our end game, which is leaving a legacy. And you go on to say that, you know, we need to have clarity about what is most meaningful, both professionally and personally. Tiffany, how do you guide someone through finding their purpose and defining that vision? Well, you know, it took me nearly three years. I mean, my drop the ball journey was three years. I wow. wrote the book in hopes that it wouldn't have to take someone else so long. I, I love that you're bringing this up because I used to be someone who was very much obsessed with the trees, particularly what I was supposed to be doing. And I was constantly having all of these to-do lists. And what I came to was this clarity about the fact that what you do is far less important than the difference you make. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of exercises that I did that helped me to achieve clarity about what mattered most to me. The first was this funeral visualization exercise that Stephen Covey made popular with his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And you basically imagine a colleague, a family member, a friend, eulogizing you at your funeral, which seems very morbid, but it's a very powerful exercise because at the end of your life, you don't want people to say, oh, she got she got a lot of stuff done. No, <laughs> you want people to talk about the legacy that you made. And so what it does is it immediately gets you out of those trees and into why am I even here? What is it that I would want people to say? And then you can begin to project manage your life backwards. The other exercise that was really important is one in which you ask a number of people in your life who have known you at different junctures, someone right. who knew you when you were a child right now, and you just say to them, can you talk to me about a time when you've experienced me at my best? And then it's really important that you be quiet and that you record their response in some way. I used my phone to do it, or you know, I would take furious notes. And then at some point after you've interviewed enough people, just like lay it all out, print everything, lay it all out on a table on the floor, and start circling the words and the phrases that are similar. What we don't realize is that even from the time we were children, there is a consistent experience that people have had of us that is a very important clue to what our highest and best use is in making a difference in the world. And both those exercises together for me really shed light on why I'm here, what my purpose should be. But ultimately, your purpose is a decision that's informed by your human experiences. And, you know, if I spent enough time with each one of your listeners, we could do enough story mining to get really clear about what that purpose might be. But it's inside of you. You don't have to go searching for it. Everything that you need is inside of you. I love this. And I have to tell you, Trailblazers, Blazer Nation knows that I'm an Evernote junkie. Let me tell you, a lot of what you've said, I have taken aggressive notes <laughs> from reading. Again, I could come back to several more points, but I'll move on from the book. I'm obsessed with your book right now. So... I know you're committed. You've shared your purpose, you know, at the top. And I know you're committed to helping all women and girls lead powerful and self-determined lives. 
from what you've been seeing, what are the biggest challenges that young female leaders today are facing? Oh, a number. One is that young women often don't have enough practice failing publicly to understand the importance of taking risks, trailblazers take risks, and we put ourselves out there. But if you are socially conditioned to believe that you need to be excellent, that you should color in the lines, that your performance matters above all else, it's very difficult for you to take that big risk. One of the biggest gifts that my father gave to me was really pushing me to apply for student government when I was Mm -hmm. young. And the biggest lesson for me in that, particularly when you're young, is, you know, think about it. You are coming up with a platform. You are coming up with the reasons why people should invest in you. You're making signs and posters and you're engaging people in this process of your leadership journey. And when you lose an election, which I did my first election as a girl, you have this experience of having to get up the next day and go to school as an official loser by a vote of your peers. (laughs) And what you discover is that the world doesn't fall apart. In fact, people have respect for you because you put yourself out there. People say, I voted for you. Who knows if they really did, but they talk about your campaign and faculty and staff and administrators at the school recognize you as a student leader just because you ran. And so I saw the benefits of taking these risks. And we just don't have enough practice doing that. We still have a lot of negative perceptions when it comes to women and likability and respect. So we often have to adapt everything from, you know, smiling. If you're a young black woman in particular, you know, there's a stereotype that we're angry. And so we're constantly having to figure out how to navigate, you know, other people's perception of us. But one of the biggest barriers is that in order for you to be successful, people have to invest in you. I'm basically the cumulative investment of a number of people. And by human nature, we tend to invest in people who we can see ourselves in, right? Mm -hmm. It's very easy for us to say, oh, you know, I remember when I was her age. I remember when I felt that way and I was really struggling. Let me give her a hand up or a leg up. Because we don't have enough women in the highest levels of leadership, because we don't have enough women of color, black women in particular, in leadership, there are fewer people in the workplace and in our lives that are successful who will look at us, at a black woman, at a black girl and say, I see myself in her. And so therefore, I'm going to support her. I'm going to invest in her. So we have to be even more intentional about seeking out the mentorship and the sponsorship that we need in order for us to be successful. You know, our leadership journeys are not solo endeavors. They're team sports. And we have to be coaches that are much more strategic than other people. So there are lots of barriers, but our ancestors overcame them. We've got, you know, champions. We're part of a legacy of people who have overcome barriers. And I have a lot of hope and optimism for the future and our ability to do so. And I'm here for young women. That's why I'm here to support them in their journey and to ensure that there are many doors open as possible. Why is it so exciting to lead people? What excites you most about it? Well, I see leadership as an enormous privilege. You know, my mm-hmm. favorite definition of leadership is by a man named Marshall Gans at Harvard. He said, leadership is enabling others to achieve a shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. And I love that definition because at the end of the day, especially today, you know, we don't always have the resources. We don't always have the budget. We don't always have the talent or the team. And so in order to enable others, ultimately they have to be able to trust you and know what your ultimate purpose is. And for me, what's exciting about leadership is that 
when you're someone who's very clear about why you're here and you can enable other people, you can do extraordinary things. And we need extraordinary movements in order for us to get past some of the challenges that we have. So, you know, I enjoy leadership, but I also take leadership very seriously. I feel that it's an honest privilege. And, you know, the ability to motivate people to take action based on your words and based on your strategy, the ability to motivate people to create change and take action based on your words and based on your strategy is really important and something that I don't take lightly. We're getting set to wrap up here, but I know you're an avid reader. And so beyond Drop the Ball, what other books have you read recently that you can't stop telling other people about? Okay, this is an easy question for me. And we, can, we, can have a whole, we can have a whole podcast about books because yes. I've always been a bookworm. Yes, uh, I can and, tell. <laughs> and I love books. A couple of them. One, there's a book that just came out recently. I read it months ago because I had I got an early copy of the book, which I love. It's by a woman named Milafer Merchant, M-E-R-C-H-A-N-T. It's called The Power of Onlyness. Mm. And it's a book about how you have unique ideas, a unique perspective, a unique lens, and how you leverage that in order to create change in the world to really make a dent. I love the book because it's a good book for people who are used to having to lead from the foot of the table, because we're not always the people who have been in a position of power and influence. But I literally, it's a book that doesn't inspire you to think, it inspires you to act. And ever since I read that book, I've just been not thinking so hard, but just taking action on some of the ideas that I've had. And I'm actually about to launch some really exciting things as a result of reading the book. There's also another book that I've read recently. It's called Insight. It's by a psychologist named Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H. And I love this book because it's a book about how most of us understand the importance of self-awareness. And we can always point out and identify other people who aren't self-aware. But we actually aren't nearly as self-aware as we think. And it's a really important book for me. I've been recommending it to a lot of people because I told you that my drop the ball journey was about three years. If I had have had Tasha Yurik's insight 10 years ago, I could have shaved off a good year off wow. of my drop the ball journey because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who I was and become more self-aware. Her book really cuts at that. So I could go on, but I'll just name <laughs> those two and stop there for now. They're both incredible books. I knew I'd get you on that question. <laughs> So last question of the day, and I'll let you get about the business of today. What's one action that our Blazer Nation hopping off this amazing conversation can begin to do right now that's going to help them to blaze their trail? Only one? One action. <laughs> you know, my parents taught me that. My parents taught me that if you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do something you've never done before in order to get it. Yes. And in the crazy, hurried days of our day-to-day lives, there's very little, actually, that we do on a day-to-day basis that we've never done before. So if there's one thing I would encourage you to do in order to fast-forward your trailblazerness, we're going to make that a <laughs> verb, yes. verb, verb, verbalize that, I would say just stop for a moment and think to yourself, what am I going to do today that I've never done before to advance my leadership, to advance the leadership of somebody who I have influence over and make it a point to do that? That is awesome. Tiffany, thank you so very much. Tell everyone how they can stay connected to you and also how they can get a copy of Drop the Ball. You can reach me at Tiffany at TiffanyDufu.com and you can get Drop the Ball at any retail outlet or books or site. Tiffany, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Thank you. 
Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.